John chapter 1, part 2. Why don't you turn to verse 19. John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. He was filled with the Spirit of God while he was still in his mother's womb. I don't know if that can be said of any other human being, maybe apart from Messiah himself. He was chosen to be the very special forerunner, the advance man for Messiah's first arrival. What a tremendously important task and ministry. John was the son of a priest. He was related to Yeshua by birth. He was Yeshua's older cousin. John lived a very devoted, austere life in the wilderness. He was the first prophet that God has sent to the Jewish people in 400 years. John's ministry was very powerful. John made a tremendous impact on the Jewish people. Israel's leaders sent religious experts to John to hear from him who he was and why he was baptizing people, immersing people in water. This resulted in John telling them very important truths about his cousin, Yeshua. Verse 19, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites, temple assistants, assistants to the priests, when the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. So in response to their question about who he was, John denied that he was the Messiah. Uh, this teaches us that there ha must have been some speculations among the Jewish people that John might be the long-awaited Messiah. Verse 21, well then, who are you? They asked, are you Eliyahu, Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet? We are expecting. No. Rabbi Jerry, why do you think the religious experts asked John if he was Elijah or the prophet? Who is the prophet? Well, they asked if he was Elijah because we know from Malachi before the great day of the Lord, Elijah will return. That's why our Bibles as a, in Christendom, as opposed to a Jewish Tanakh, ends with the book of Malachi because it's a great ending for the Old Testament as you go into the New Testament and read about this promised Messiah and all these things we read about. But the prophet is a more um, mysterious term if you're not as familiar with the Torah. But if you are, then you'll know that the prophet refers to the prophet like Moses that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. Moses promised that one day the Lord would raise up a prophet from among the Jewish people 
greater than him. You would be like him, but even greater. And the Torah itself ends with the statement that there has been no prophet like Moses among the Jewish people. And so it's understandable with the amazing things that uh, John the Baptist was doing. They would think maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is Elijah. Maybe he's this prophet. Um, he says no to all these things because their understanding of all of these terms are going to be radically shifted and he is not claiming to be the Messiah. Elijah never died. He's one of, I think, only two human beings who never died, uh, Enoch and then Elijah. Uh, the Lord promised to send this great, powerful prophet back to the Jewish people uh, before the Lord's coming. So, no, he's not Elijah, but he has a very similar powerful ministry to that of Elijah. Verse 22, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. This is a quote from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. It's a prophecy about the first arrival of the Lord. yud Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord God himself. It includes the information that there would be a voice who would shout to the Jewish people to prepare themselves for the Lord's arrival. John identified himself as that voice, as that forerunner of the Lord. Rabbi Glenn, what are the implications that Isaiah's prophecy reveals that it was the Lord, yud heh vav the Tetragrammaton, who was coming. What does this teach us about who Yeshua is? Well, it teaches us that the Messiah would be not just a great man or even just a prophet, but the Lord himself. That's what Malachi had announced. You know, what I find very interesting here are some of the attitudes and some of this interaction you notice they didn't say, then who are you? We really want to know the truth of God. Please tell us. They say, we need an answer so we can go back to the people who sent us. They're not there because they're hungering for the truth. They're there to do their job and go home. And then, you know, they're asking him, he says, I'm not the Messiah. Okay, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way the... The, the, the way of the Lord, right? And I'm sure they were very unsatisfied with that. But he's not giving them what they're asking for, though he is speaking absolute truth, because they were not prepared for it. They didn't want that truth. They just wanted to do their job, go back home, you know, their little fact-finding mission, and, and go back home. But the implications are startling that the Messiah will be God himself. When John says, I'm the one who's announcing the coming, I'm the forerunner, uh, that right there should cause everybody's jaw to drop in terms of the implications. 
So these were priests and Levites. These were religious experts. These were spiritual heavyweights. And yet you're saying you don't think that they were terribly sincere, really interested in who John was. They were just doing their job. And if that's right, then the danger is we are, you know, spiritual people. Uh, Sometimes I think we see ourselves as spiritual heavyweights and religious experts. But how many times can we be like these priests and Levites who are just going through the motions, just carrying out a task without really being seriously sincere and engaged? So John's ministry was to prepare the Jewish people for this amazing occurrence that had been predicted for thousands of years, the arrival of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the Lord himself, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, showing up in human form. We needed to be prepared. We needed to be ready, right? But that kind of Preparing people for the Lord's arrival is only for people like John the Baptist, right? Wouldn't be, so, wouldn't be something that we're to do, right? So my point is that each one of us, I believe, are called to the same kind of ministry. I believe God wants each one of us to be little John the Baptists. Uh, Preparing people for the Lord's arrival. Doesn't the Lord want to arrive in the minds and hearts of people today? Isn't today the day of salvation? Therefore, shouldn't we, each one of us, be little John the Baptists, seeing ourselves with that kind of ministry Forerunners preparing the Lord's way in the minds and hearts of the people he is bringing into our path. Every person that he is bringing into our path. Verse 24. Then the Pharisees, who had been sent, asked him, If you aren't the Messiah, or Elijah, or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? to immerse people in water. So now we're introduced to the Pharisees, Rabbi Jerry. Who were they? Who were these Pharisees? Well, the priests and the Levites who came most likely were Sadducees, and sort of opposed to them were the Pharisees. There's other groups as well. And so the Pharisees famously believed in the resurrection. But more than that, they were lay people. They were uh, religious Jewish people who really called other Jewish people to really follow God's law. They believed heavily in religious purity. They kind of looked at the Pharisees, they looked at the Sadducees as kind of too lax about things, maybe corrupt in different ways. And they were very popular among the people. The Sadducees controlled the temple, but the Pharisees controlled the synagogue. We'll see in John 12 that they have the power to expel people from the synagogue. So that's their place of power. Both of these groups, very different though, but coming in to investigate things and kind of not happy with how John is responding to them. Um, we don't want to just see, a lot of times, just to add one last point, a lot of times when we talk about the Pharisees, we see it as Yeshua good, Pharisees bad. Okay, the Pharisees did a lot of really good things for people. They were involved with the poor. Yeshua 
really interacts with them very heavily. Um, so don't just see Pharisees and Sadducees as bad and Yeshua as good. It's more complex than they also needed repentance, though. In many ways, um, theologically, they were closer to Yeshua than the Sadducees. Uh, baptizing people, immersing people in water was based on having spiritual authority. Um, they are the spiritual elite. They are spiritual leaders of Israel, and they wanted to know what spiritual authority John believed he had. You can see maybe a little bit of competition, a little bit of jealousy. Why are you doing this? You know, the priests, the Levites, and we Pharisees are the spiritual authorities. What gives you the right to baptize thousands of Jewish people? John didn't answer their question. Instead, he used their question to point them to Yeshua as the forerunner should. Verse 26, John told them, I baptize, I immerse with water. But right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. Notice that John understood that the Lord Messiah was already there with them. He was among them, still unrecognized by them. Rabbi Glan, a slave, was the lowest position in society. Why did John believe he who was the greatest of the prophets? Why did he believe that he was even unworthy to be the Lord's slave? And is there any lesson there for us? Well, he saw himself as unworthy in the same way that Isaiah when he had been transported uh, in that vision in the year that King Uzziah died, he's transported in this vision to the Lord's throne room. Now, Isaiah was arguably the most righteous man in his generation, and yet when he was in the presence of the Holy One, said, I'm a dead man. Um, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so John understood the nature of his sin and his people's sin. Uh, Messiah, the Son, is equally God, possessing divine attributes, including holiness. And so John knew that even the best of us is desperately sinful in view of God's holiness and undeserving of his favor. Humility, uh, seeing yourself as even lower than a, you know, like a slave. This, this is the greatest prophet, Yeshua said, who ever lived and sees himself as so unworthy and not even fit to be a slave. The lesson for us is we are to have that same kind of humility and see ourselves you know, not at the, as these great spiritual leaders, spiritual elites, but as the Lord's servants, the Lord's slaves.
Verse 28, and I'm going to ask you, Rabbi Glenn, why John included this information. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. Well, this is interesting. John is giving us times, locations, individuals, and it's important because the Gospels are not mythology or legend. They are genuinely historical and verifiable narratives. They include times, locations, individuals. They are entirely trustworthy, and anyone wanting to determine the veracity of this report could easily make inquiry based on these facts that he includes. So it's very good. He's letting us know this is real. You can check it out for yourself. Real history really happened, real historical people, real historical events. It's, it's real, it's true, reliable, trustworthy. Testimony, witness. Verse 29, a new section, John and Yeshua. The next day, John saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Rabbi Jerry, John knew that Yeshua was God's lamb who takes away the sin of the entire world. Pretty amazing. Uh, what's the significance? What's going on? Well, if we were to go into all the significance, we'd be here for another hour at least. So I'm going to give you a very short version. For the longer version, I point you to our excellent video with David the Holiday Man Goldstein called on Messiah and the Passover. But the short version here is that Leviticus teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Yeshua is identified as the Lamb of God is a reference not just to the sacrificial system in general, but also Passover, in which a lamb was sacrificed so the plague of death would pass over houses. Mishai Yeshua, though, is identified as a lamb who does not take away the sins of just the Jewish people. In that day, the Passover lamb, the first Passover, was for the Jewish people to avoid the consequences of that last plague. But he's identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the entire world. And so in this quotation right here from John, we see the worldwide implications of the atonement Yeshua is going to provide. Now, John admits that he did not understand all these things at first. It's been revealed to him. And that's the big thing we're seeing here in this first chapter of John is things are being revealed about who Messiah is, that he's come, who John is. And what we're seeing is that many people have really big ideas about this stuff, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the lay people. They all are very sure they know God and understand the plans of God and understand exactly what's going on, but they're seeing over and over again as we go through this gospel, we'll see that things are turned in a way that they didn't understand at first. It's different, but it lines up with Scripture. And if they had been... Watching these things may be better, they could have understood. 
John identified Yeshua as the one he had talked about who was greater than he was because he existed before John. What does this teach us about Yeshua, Rabbi Jerry? Well, this verse connects back to verse 15 and reinforces that Messiah Yeshua is greater than John the Baptist. This was a point of contention for some people at this time in Yeshua's ministry. Um, you know, is John the Baptist the Messiah? Some of his followers were confused. Some people were thinking he might have been more important than Messiah Yeshua, but he is reinforcing over and over again that really he's pointing the way. You need to, the, the baton is being passed to Messiah Yeshua and you should be following him. So he's greater, obviously Messiah Yeshua is greater for many reasons, but in this chapter it is given because Messiah Yeshua has no beginning and has existed eternally while John has not, right? He is God. Only God exists eternally. Nobody else does and nobody else will. So he is God and John is not, which is important. <laughs> you know, Rabbi Lauren, there's three really important words here that it would be easy to gloss over. You know, the first words of verse 29, the next day. Think about it, those Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, this fact-finding committee came to him, and they didn't get the answer, at least they didn't get an answer that they liked, And so, but that's all they're getting from him. And chances are now, okay, well, okay, whatever, and they go back home. If And maybe one of them or two of them or a few stuck around, so you guys go back, I'm going to stick around, I want to see, maybe I'll find something else out. The next day, he spills all the beans. This is him, and this is why I came baptizing. If they had just stayed till the next day. Don't give up too easy. I like that. John explained that one of the reasons he was baptizing people was so that the Messiah would be revealed. That through... Messiah's baptism, John the forerunner was able to identify Yeshua as the Messiah. Verse 32, then John testified, that word testified, you know, it's like legal, evidence, factual, staking my name and reputation on this, right? Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him, referring to Yeshua. I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize, who will immerse with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself. I saw this happen to Yeshua, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Uh, Rabbi Glenn, please enlighten us. Okay. Um, John sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Yeshua. Maybe it was in the form of a dove or maybe just simply that the Holy Spirit landed upon him, came upon him like a bird would alight onto a branch. In any case, 
Um, he sees this sign that God told him would be the sign to indicate the one. And I want us to think about this. In many ways, King David's life foreshadowed those of Messiah's. There's a real connection on many levels between David and the son of David. That's why one of the titles of Messiah is son of David. Even the announcement of David's kingship and the uh, announcement of Yeshua's messiahship parallel one another. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you remember when God sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house, telling him one of, your son, one of his sons is to be the next king. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse's got these seven sons that he parades before them. And John, uh, Sam, Samuel sees Eliav, the firstborn, and he's so impressed. And he says to himself, certainly the Lord's anointed is standing before him. And God says, nope. Man looks on the outward. I look at the heart. I have not chosen this one. And so Jesse's bringing his sons one by one, and they're getting younger and smaller. And Samuel's probably panicking, like, you got to be kidding me, right? And seven of his sons go by, and he goes, well, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Is that it? He goes, well, <laughs> there's the youngest, and he's tending the sheep. In other words, you can't possibly mean the little pitskala, the little guy. Bring him, because we're not going to sit down until this matter is handled. They bring in David, the youngest, and God says, arise and anoint him. This is he. Now fast forward to John the Baptist. He's there in order to identify and announce who the king of kings, right? The Messiah is. And he says, I wouldn't have recognized him, you know, by, by outward appearances, I wouldn't have figured it was him. But the one who sent me to baptize said, the one upon whom you see the Spirit of God descend, he's the one. And so again, by human standards, by outward appearances, wasn't going to be. It was God's choice. And so an amazing parallel between Samuel anointing David to be the next king and John the Baptist announcing Messiah Yeshua, the King of Kings. Beautiful parallel there. The Spirit of God came upon certain people to empower them for various ministries. This is the greatest coming on any servant of God ever. The Spirit of God descends on Yeshua like a dove. Uh, it is somehow knowable to John the Immerser. And he sees the Spirit rest on Yeshua, stay on Yeshua. Yeshua now is the one who has the Spirit of God in the greatest possible way, to the greatest degree, who will empower him for the greatest ministry of all. And John is telling us here that we need Yeshua because he is the one who immerses human beings with the Holy Spirit of God Almighty. Yeshua alone, no one else, is able to immerse us. So 
surround us. Fill us with the spirit of the living God, the invisible presence of God himself, living in us, surrounding us, empowering us, transforming us. We need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit of God, desperately. That's the way of life. That's the way of transformation. That's the way to the eternal presence of God. This is our greatest need. Only Yeshua is able to do that. Why do you need to believe in Yeshua? Why do you need to follow Yeshua? You need Yeshua to immerse you, to baptize you in the holy presence, the Holy Spirit of the living God. If I can add one small comment to that. You know, when we talk about the immersing of the Holy Spirit, you know, in different traditions that has a lot of different connotations. Um, you know, some will focus more on sign gifts, others on other things. I think really when we look at the context here of the Holy Spirit coming on Messiah Yeshua, we see it as a sign of God's approval. It's a seal, right? When we have the Holy Spirit come upon us, when we first become believers, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means we are set apart, and that cannot be taken away, those who are truly sealed. And so I think on a very basic level, the, the Holy Spirit coming upon us is a sign of God's approval, that we are within his kingdom, that he is empowering us. We shouldn't immediately jump to miracles or sign gifts or other things, but understanding this crucial fundamental truth that those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are set apart. Those who are not saved are not filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit in the way that we are. We come into this world ignorant, confused, in darkness, alienated from God, far from God, at war with God, enmity with God. That is the human condition. We need God in our, in our lives. We need the presence of God. We need to be surrounded by the presence of God, the nearness of God, closeness to God, filled with the life of God. Only Yeshua, God's chosen one, God's anointed one, anointed with not oil like the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel were anointed with oil, but anointed with the presence of the living God himself. We need Yeshua to reconcile us to God, to bring us into the everlasting presence of God now and forever. I think we're going to end there. Rabbi Glenn, Rabbi Jerry, thank you so much.